It's hard. To, he doesn't get warm till July. But it's supposed to be in the 60s all, and even approaching 70 this next week. So I hope winter is pretty much behind us and it's not supposed to freeze at night all, all week long. <clears throat> and rain tonight. I'm amazed sometimes at how the, uh, the song service fits the sermon both before and after. Uh, I try to pay attention to that most of the time to, to hear the words, uh, not just sing out of rote or out of memory or whatever, but to pay attention to what we're saying in the words. And so often they fit very close with the message. And uh, I hope we pay attention to that because I do believe that uh, quite frequently, God inspires the songs that are that are picked out by the the, the song leaders, uh, and how how well they do fit. Maybe it's partly simply because the Psalms fit the rest of the Bible. <laughs> you know, there's there is that because it all fits together beautifully. But there seem to be times when it just fits so well that it almost had to have been inspired that way. It seems to me. Anyway, getting into today, uh, throughout the Bible you have a lot of frustrations of various people expressed. Uh, they express them in many, many different ways. Uh, look at the book of Job, and uh, with all that was piled on Job, there were a lot of expressions of frustration there in his life and in his circumstances. And even his friends piled frustrations on top of the ones that he was himself dealing with. But no matter where you go, if you read through the Psalms, you see an awful lot of frustration there by, by David and by Solomon. And anywhere you go in the Bible, whether it's New Testament, uh, the apostles expressed various types of frustration uh, throughout the things that they wrote. There is one aspect of that frustration that I will address today, and that is in one expression itself, which is, how long? Uh, we could spend weeks going through the various frustrations in the Bible, but uh, how long will the frustrations last is kind of the question for today. Whatever manner of frustration it is, how long is this going to last? And we'll approach it from three different perspectives. First of all, let's look at man's perspective here uh, a little bit. I've put together a few scriptures uh, about it. Because we, in our Christian life here in the end time, have often expressed how long is this going on. <clears throat> let's begin in Psalm 6. David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in anger, neither chastise me in your hot displeasure. We don't like chastening. We don't like pain. We don't like correction. So he says, Have mercy upon me, O Eternal, for I am weak. O Eternal, heal me, for my bones are vexed. I'm feeling discouragement and frustration all the way to my bones. My soul is also sore vexed, my emotions, my mind, my heart, my feelings. But you, O Eternal, how long? Then he says to return to him and deliver him. But how long, David wondered, am I going to suffer? 
how long before you give me relief? And he expressed that many different ways, but I concentrated on just this one phrase, how long, in looking these scriptures up. Uh, go to chapter 13 and begin in verse 1. <clears throat> how long will you forget me, O Eternal? Forever? Uh, that sounds like a pretty strong discouragement there. When you, you're asking how long and then you say, is it forever? Will this ever end? How long will you hide your face from me? Now, you've been hearing me preach now for over 22 years. Those of you who, well, none of you go back quite that far, but from 2000 on at least. Some of you have heard me saying that God has turned His face from us. And here, David expresses that not as an end-time thing necessarily, but in his own life. Uh, how long will you hide your face? And we know from the prophecies, he says he'll turn his face from us, and then we sit here and say, how long? And sometimes it seems like forever, doesn't it? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? So King David, who will be king over all Israel someday, had daily sorrow and hurt and frustration that he had to deal with every day of his life. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? When will you deliver me from my enemies? Sound familiar? Things don't change. As Mark Twain said, history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it sure does rhyme. And the human frustrations go on and on, year after year. Let's go to chapter 35. And begin in verse 17. Well, he says in verse 16, talks about hypocritical mockers in feasts. They gnashed upon me with their teeth. So he had people who were talking him down, talking about him, gossip mongers and so on. And he got tired of it. He says, Lord, how long will you look on? How, well, how long are you going to sit up there and just watch this? When are you going to do something about it, in other words? Rescue my soul from their destructions, my darling from the lions. I will give you thanks in the great congregation. Uh, I'm just waiting. I will praise you among much people. He's trying to reason with God and say, I'm suffering this. Are you just going to sit there and let it go on and on? I'll, I'll talk of your greatness. He's trying to use a little leverage. Hear me. I'm frustrated. Let's go to chapter 74. Chapter 74. These are all written for us so that we might learn from them and so that we might maybe mitigate some of our frustrations by seeing, hey, it's not just me. Uh, this has been going on a long time. Uh, chapter 74, verse 9. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet... Neither is there among us any that know how long. O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme your name forever? When are you going to put a stop to this? Mankind is against you. My enemies are against you. Uh, nobody seems to know how long this is going to last. And you and I have been asking in this day and age, how long, well, I... I remember asking that question when I was 10 years old. 
because my uncle would come over and he'd read in Time and Newsweek and U.S. News and World Report about things that were going on in the world and wild dogs in Georgia or whatever uh, and refer to a lot of the prophecies. And so we'd sit around and say, how long is this going to last? That was in 1953 that I remember that, in 54. And all our lives now, we've been asking the same question whether it was 72 or 75 or 82 or who knows when else we targeted and wondered, when is this going to end? David had the same questions. Of course, these are prophecies as well. Understand that, that David wrote many, many things here that have to do with the end time. So it wasn't just his lament, but down through history, the lament. Chapter 79. Uh, verse 5 How long, eternal, will you, will you be angry forever? Shall your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the heathen that have not known you and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon your name. See, there's a prophecy right there because God has never yet done that in the history of the world. It is slated to occur very shortly now, but it's never happened before where all the kingdoms of the earth uh, were beset on by God. So here he's saying, how long are you going to be angry? Well, God showed his anger at David. He showed his anger at Moses at times in his frustrations. He shows his anger at us here in the end time for being what we were as Laodiceans. And... When is this going to be abated? How long will it go on? It's, it's a question that absorbs the minds of a lot of people. Chapter 80, uh, verse 3. Turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. Same things we read in the prophecies. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry against the prayer of your people? How long will our prayers be stench in your nostrils as opposed to incense and an aroma that you love? You feed them with the bread of tears and give them tears to drink in great measure. You make us a strife to our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. They laugh at us. When are you going to turn around, God, and cause your face to shine and save us? When's this going to happen? Have we touched on any of your feelings yet? Let's go to chapter 87. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The eternal loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Is that a 2 or a 7? I think it was 82. That just doesn't sound right. Let's go to 82 and see if that fits better. Yeah. God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, from David's perspective, it seemed like God was making a judgment for the wicked because the wicked seemed to prosper. <laughs> he mentions that in other psalms, how the wicked seem to prosper. And he says, 
how is this? The righteous are suffering and the wicked seem to be prospering. I think Christ even alluded to that in some of his sayings while he was here. For lo, your enemies... Oh, wait a minute. Um, how long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Then he says, defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. So, he says, when does this turn around and the wicked don't seem to get blessed and the righteous and the poor and the needy get the help that they want? It seemed somewhat unfair to him, obviously, the way he put it. And sometimes it might seem that way a bit to us as well. Now to 89. And down about 46. How long, eternal, will you hide yourself forever? Here again he expresses this just seems endless. It's, it's like forever that God's hidden Himself from us. Shall your wrath burn like fire? He says, remember how short my time is. <laughs> it seems like I've been suffering frustrations and difficulties all my life. As a young man, he did. And he suffered an awful lot at the hands of Saul, if you will. Uh, fear and frustration. And it had gone on and on with enemies within his own family enemies outside his family, enemies in his own courtyard, and enemies around Israel that wanted him killed and deposed as the leader of Israel. So he had enemies on every level, and it just seemed like it was forever. So he says, remember, I'm only going to be here so long. Is this going to be my entire lifetime and beyond? What gives? Does he sound frustrated? Have you made all men in vain? You know, what's your purpose here? What's going on? Are we all just going to be live 70, 80 years, be frustrated and die? Is that the end of it? Now, David knew about the kingdom of God, and he looked forward to being in the courts of God's house, and he expresses that other places in the Psalms. But there were times in his life that he got discouraged and frustrated and cried out, you know, man, I don't know whether I can handle this. What man is he that lives and shall not see death? Shall he deliver his soul from the hand of the grave? We're all going to die down here. Where are your former loving kindnesses which you swore unto David in your truth? He says, you told me you were going to show me loving kindness and gentleness and love. And all I see is enemies, fear, destruction, and frustration. Uh, you know, what are you going to do, God? Is this going to go on forever and ever? Chapter 90. Uh, verse 13. Return, O Eternal, how long? And let it repent you concerning your servants. Yeah, you know, David recognized that he had sinned, everybody had sinned. And he, yet he says, we're trying down here. We're trying to obey you. I'm trying to obey you. In Psalm 51, he had a very, very deep prayer of repentance for some of his sins. So he says, the heathen don't acknowledge you at all. And yet we do. And this seems to go on and on. 
when are you going to change your attitude or repent you concerning your servants? Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Can you balance this out? <laughs> Can you give us the same amount of joy and happiness that we've had frustration and difficulties? These are some pretty deep emotional feelings here. And I'll stop there on those. Uh, but I think that expresses a lot of our own concerns. Uh, because he has said he would turn his face from us at this time because of our sins that reach and he can't handle it. Doesn't want anything to do with sinners. And certainly since the church began to come apart after Herbert Armstrong's death and been splintered and scattered, the confusion and frustration has just been everywhere. And people everywhere are asking these very questions. Are there any answers? So, to this point, we have looked at man's and our perspective. And even one of the major prophets and key personnel that God is going to use in the future and his frustrations. Now let's turn to another perspective. Let's look at it from God's perspective for a few moments. Because there's our perspective toward God, and then there's God's perspective toward us. And those are diametrically opposed to each other for the most part, and have been since Adam and Eve right on down. Let's go to Exodus 16. Exodus 16. Just considering where we're going, you've already pretty well figured this one out, I'm sure. Uh, verse 27. And it came to pass that there went out some of the people on the seventh day. This is speaking of the man on God who instructed them, you remember, to gather it six days, and on the seventh day, don't go gather it. So here it came to pass... In spite of God's instruction, there went out some of the people on the seventh day for to gather, and they didn't find any. Well, God had said there wouldn't be any, but they didn't believe God. Does that sound like a common problem throughout man's history? And the Eternal said to Moses, How long refuse you to keep my commandments and my laws? Now, here's a God who had instructed Adam and Eve in the garden about all they could have and how wonderful it would be, and indeed it was. And then they did the one thing he had told them not to do. And right then, he may have even had the emotion, the feeling, the thought, how long will this be that mankind will not do what I ask and won't believe me? And certainly it is re-expressed here with Moses and the people. How long before they won't believe me? We might ask ourselves, why, when he told us in Revelation 3 how it would be right now, how have we gone these past 30 years without doing what we need to about it? Where God has been frustrated, and we'll see that here in a few minutes. 
Numbers 14. Numbers 14. This is kind of the other side of the coin. Uh, here, let's go to about verse 11. <clears throat> the Eternal said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And how long will it be before they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them. So you're beginning to see a pattern here. We read a bunch of scriptures about, Oh God, save us, how long are you going to let us be frustrated? And then we see God saying, How long are you people going to keep rebelling against me? <laughs> the frustration's on both sides, right? I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them and will make of you a greater nation and mightier than they. And then Moses said to, to God, Then the Egyptians shall hear it, for they brought up this people in the might in your might from among them, and they'll tell other inhabitants of other lands and about the pillar of fire and all of that. Uh, then he says in verse 15, If you kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of thee will speak, saying, because the Eternal was not able to bring this people into the land which, we swore, which He swore them, He slain them in the wilderness. So God's anger is very strong here. And Moses, who was his friend, dared speak up and say, well, what's going to happen here? All these people are going to say, their God isn't much of a God. He said He was going to take them into the land of promise, and He hasn't done it. So God worked out a compromise. He decided not to just kill them all immediately. But he said, all right, you're going to wander 40 years and all of you who have rebelled are going to die in the wilderness and your kids are going in. So I'm still going to do it. The nations around you are going to see that I deliver them, but it's going to be delayed 40 years. Sometimes our intransigence, our disobedience, our lack of attention to God has a price. And it's had a price on the end-time church, hasn't it? We've been going through splintering and confusion and frustration and enemies and wondering how long now for quite some time. We've suffered for years as a result of being lackadaisical and Laodicean and lukewarm. How long will you provoke me, God says, uh, right on down to Verse 27. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel which they murmur against me. I'm tired of it. Say to them, as truly as I live, says the Eternal, as you have spoken in my ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in the wilderness, and all that were numbered of you according to your whole number from twenty years and up age of accountability, which have murmured against me. Didn't hold it against the kids. It was the adults. Doubtless you shall not come into the land that I swore to you except for... So he carried out at least some of his frustration against them. But his mercy overrode and their kids got to go in. Let's go to Joshua. 
Now here we are coming up to the time of going into the promised land. Uh, chapter, what did I want here? 18, Joshua 18. So they'd come in, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long are you slack to go to possess the land which the eternal God of your fathers has given you? So then he says, Pick out three men from each tribe. And then he's going to describe how he'll use them to help get these people who will not even go and claim what God gave them. He brought them through 40 years. They watched their parents all die. He used Joshua to back up the Jordan River like he had the Red Sea and let them come in. And yet some of them would not take hold of and seize God's blessings. He'd given them the promised land. He had offered it. He'd said, there it is. Go get it. Move in. And because of their own fears and difficulties and disbelief in God, lack of faith, fear of enemies, whatever, they hadn't done it. Now God has told you and I to enter in. Take what I have given you. But most have not, and most will not. Maybe when the tribulation comes on them. They're going to have a chance here pretty quick now to gather and serve God. But 90% will not do it. So even when God opens the door wide and says, Come on! And then urges them, Do it! Joshua says, Everybody else has, but you haven't. How long are you going to sit here on the fence? He who sit on fence sooner or later have pain. <laughs> you know? First uh, Samuel. First Samuel sixteen here. If the Eternal say to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. So he has to speak to the prophet Samuel, who was essentially a godly man. And he said, I've rejected Saul. I'm going to appoint someone else. So why, after I've let you know that I've rejected Saul, why are you still sitting there mourning over it? Get off your butt, take your oil, and go anoint whom I take you to. Can I put this in kind of a plain, crass way? Let's get the point. When God 
gives you opportunity, seize it and go, and don't sit around worrying about the past. At this point, Saul was the past. God had let Samuel know that. But Samuel couldn't give it up. He couldn't move forward. He was just sitting there. God says, how long are you going to sit there? Get up and go. I hope these are echoing in our ears pretty loudly. 1 Kings 18. Uh, here is the episode with uh, Elijah. And God was making a difference between those who would serve him and those who wanted to serve Baal. And Elijah was used to kill 400 prophets of Baal, get rid of them. Uh, people think I'm pretty harsh these days when I'm saying you ought to quit lying and stealing and committing fraud. Well, what did God have Elijah do? Just kill them. That stopped their sin, you know. Stopped their false prophecies. Stopped a lot of problems. But I want to pick up uh, a particular point here. Let's see, I think it was in verse 21. Yeah. Elijah came to all the people and said, How long halt you between two opinions? How long are you going to sit on the fence, in other words? If the Eternal be God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. And the people answered him not a word. Then said Elijah to the people, I, even I, only remain a prophet of the Eternal, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So then he issued the challenge. And then God answered. And then those prophets of Baal were killed. Now God carried it out. He says, how, how long are you just going to sit and you can't make up your mind who's God? And then God made it pretty clear who God was and hoped that they would get the point and begin to serve Him instead of Baal. So God had a lot of frustration here with these people. How long? Elijah had a lot of frustration with them. How long are you going to be like you are? When are you going to change? What are you going to do about this? Is this going to go on forevermore? Are you going to keep worshiping Babylon around you or are you going to put Babylon aside? And serve God. How long are you going to sit and imbibe of this culture we have around us today? It's all ungodly. It's all satanic, Babylonish, and confused. How long are you going to put up with it? And when are you going to turn completely and wholly to me instead of to Baal? God... Pretty dramatic here. Let's go to Psalm again. We already saw David's frustrations here. Let's see some of God's. Psalm 4. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O you sons of men... How long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after lying 
But know that the Eternal has set apart him that is godly for himself. The Eternal will hear when I call him. So again, God's frustration is expressed. How long will my glory be turned into shame? I baptized you. I gave you my spirit. And yet you're still showing a great deal of disobedience, rebellion against me and against my thoughts. And you want to retain your thoughts of self and pride, vanity, ego in the world. How long before you turn to me? Chapter 62. Here, let's pick it up in verse 1. Truly my soul waits upon God. From Him comes my salvation. So he's a little bit uh, upbeat here. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you imagine mischief against a man? You, you shall be slain, all of you, as a, bowl, a bowing wall shall you be, and as a tottering fence, like something that the posts have rotted and you're just going to fall over, or the mortar was untempered and the rocks fall down. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly the darker side of human nature. You might say one thing, but something else is going on inside the mind, heart, and emotions that isn't clean and isn't right. How long is this mischief going to remain? God says He'll remove it, but how long will that be? Uh, Proverbs 1. Here in verse 22. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity or stupidity? And the scorners delight in their scorn, and fools hate knowledge. Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make known my words to you. So he gives us a partial answer there. How long are you going to be an idiot and not turn to me with your heart? And how long before I can bless you? So we sit here in our frustration and say, how long before you bless me? And then he says, how long are you going to be before you turn to me so I can? So you got kind of a catch-22 here. Our expressions we, or frustrations we can't get, seem to get solved. And his frustrations, whom we, because of our way, won't let him solve. Well, it's kind of hard to resolve this, isn't it? I can't because you won't. Chapter 6, verse 9. How long will you sleep, O sluggard? When will you arise out of your sleep? We could plug that right into Revelation 3. How long are we going to sit here in torpid... Laodicean, lukewarm, inactivity, and not get on fire. How, are we gonna, how long are we going to sleep spiritually? Will we get up and trim our lamps and get some oil? Or will we be found out not to have any oil in our lamps? How long are we going to sleep? Oh, but yeah, but it's so hard. 
it's so hard. It's so hard to get up, turn turn back and forth on Sealy or Beauty Rest or whoever, and uh, say, "Oh, I just can't do this. It's just too much for me." There's a lion in the streets. He might eat me on the way to work. No. Whatever. We got to do something about it. So God expresses it again here. Jeremiah 4. Get into the prophecies themselves. The specific prophets as opposed to books with a lot of prophecy in them. Oh, I'm trying to get to Jeremiah here. Chapter 4. And let's go down to verse 14. Wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and publishes affliction from Mount Ephraim. He says, how long are you going to remain with your wicked hearts and not be cleansed and made pure? Because trouble's coming. That's a prophecy for today. Verse 21. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? War. For my people is foolish. They have not known me. They are sottish children. They have no understanding. They're wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. We can get into sin real easy. I heard somebody use an expression not long ago. I do wrong so well. (laughs) I'm really good at doing wrong. Well, that's what he's expressing here. You know, people, you just, when are you going to get some understanding? You, you seem to know how to do evil. That comes pretty easy, like falling off a log. But when are you going to run, learn to do good? There's, there's a lot of frustration here in God's words. Oh. Verse 31. I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail and the anguish as of her that brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion that bewails herself, that spreads her hand, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is wearied because of murder. Character assassination, whatever. He says, this is the way we'd be here. He says, be in pain and be delivered there in Micah 4. Isaiah 7, he says, you've got to bring forth Christ. So he says, you're in travail. That's a common expression that we can use because women do go through a lot and they know it and we watch it and we know it. Not the same way they know it, but we know it as men. So he says, you're, you're suffering frustrations, but he's frustrated too. How long are you going to continue in your evil? Seems to be no solution there. It just goes on and on and on. Uh, Hosea 8. Hosea 8. Here we'll start in verse 1. and transgressed against my law, 
uh, Israel has cast off the thing that is good, the enemy shall pursue him. They've set up kings, but not by me. Uh, where's the how long in here? Did I get this right? Oh, it's, it's on down. They've set up kings, but not by me. They've made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. In other words, they're going on about life, kind of ignoring God. Your call, O Samaria, has cast you off. My anger is kindled against them. How long will it be before they attain to innocency? When will the evil go away so that things can change? seems to me that God's frustrations with man are about as great as our frustrations with our situation in Him. Let's just get a couple more. Habakkuk 1. This is, of course, speaking of this time right now. And Habakkuk was expressing your frustrations and mine here just before the financial crash of Zephaniah 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. The burden, the heavy, heavy pack, which Habakkuk the prophet did see. And he opens by saying, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you of violence and you will not save. These could almost be the exact words of David right here, expressed by an end time prophet. Why do you show me the iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are those that raise strife and contention. So he was exasperated, frustrated by everything going around him, and wondering, how long, O Lord? But then God shows that he is going to have to do some punishing in the context following this, because... Mankind will not serve and obey Him, and Israel will not serve and obey Him. So when Habakkuk asks how long, God answers, <laughs> you need to walk by faith. A little later on in chapter 2, we can go to chapter 2, verse 6 here. Um, Shall not all these take up a, a parable against Him and a taunting proverb against Him and say, Woe to him that increases that which is not his. How long? And to him that lades himself with thick clay, shall they not rise up suddenly that shall bite you and awake that shall vex you and you shall be for booty to them? So he's saying, I'm going to bring punishment and it's going to be soon. How long before this happens? Habakkuk finally decided he better just shut up and sit on his watch at the end of chapter 3 and see how long it would be because he didn't see the answers. He just felt the vexation and frustration but didn't know how long it would be. So he said, I think I better shut up, sit back, and just wait on God, see what He has to say. Let's go to the New Testament, at least for one, Matthew 17. Here's the context of the... Uh, transfiguration and so on but in verse 17 Christ expressed some frustration then Emmanuel answered and said O faithless and perverse generation how long shall I be with you how long shall I put up with you be patient with you bring him here to me 
So he did a healing right there, or a, a casting out of a devil. But he says, it's just a matter of faith. It's just a matter of believing me. How long are you going to be this way where you won't believe me and walk in faith? Bring the guy here and let's take care of this problem. So he reveals a lot here. He reveals that you may have frustrations. And here is the reason for your frustration. You're not walking in faith. You are not close to me. And therefore, you're not getting the answers you want. So he says, bring that guy here. He casts the demon out and said, all right, now see what can happen. See how it can be if you do what you're supposed to do. Now let's change this again. We've looked at it from our perspective and then from God's perspective. And not seen much of a hint of a solution until Matthew 17, which I just expressed and what Christ expressed Himself there. And that introduces the next perspective. God and man together. What we've seen throughout history is man doing his thing and being frustrated that God would not help him. Then we see God frustrated at what man has been doing and not helping because of the way man is. So it's been kind of bumping heads, hasn't it? All from Adam and Eve down to today. With very little let up. Only a very few throughout history. You can name them pretty quickly. Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. <laughs> you know, it's a short list. There are very, very few people throughout 6,000 years who have truly served God. So it's been headbutting all the way. Now let's consider what might be a solution. There was that hint there in Matthew 17, 17 and 18. Let's go to Isaiah 6. So far all we've done is expressed everybody's frustration. Now let's see if we can find some relief for God and man. Isaiah 6. <clears throat> um, let's see, let's go down to verse 11. He's been telling Isaiah that there's going to be trouble. And then said I, Eternal, how long? Ask a fair question. One we've been considering all day so far. How long? And then God answered, <clears throat> Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. He said the trouble, which he's been speaking of up to this point, is going to continue until destruction comes. You see, mankind will not repent until absolutely, totally humbled. We have expressed throughout our history that we will not bow to God. And he says, every knee will bow to me. You and I have a chance now to do that because we understand and you've understood what I've said so far today. 
pretty clear, pretty easy. Man's sinful, and God hates sin. <laughs> you know, you can put it a lot of different ways. But how long is this going to go on? He says, I'm going to have to wipe it out. And the eternal have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Now, he's talking here partly about the church, and ultimately the return of 10% of Israel at the beginning of the millennium. So he says, in all this forsaking and all this destruction, but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten. God says, this, this I'll chow down on. This I'm good with. This I can handle. As a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them, when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall, shall for the substance thereof. He says, I'm going to plant some seed that will do some good. He expressed his frustrations with worldwide in Ezekiel 16. And then he said, I'm going to take a twig from the top and I'm going to plant it and it's going to grow into something that I can accept. We're on the edge of that, brethren. How long? We see the destruction right ahead of us. It isn't very far away, is it? <coughs> The time between God blessing a small part or remnant of the church and Him blessing a 10% remnant of Israel is only about six, seven, eight years apart. That's all. I think we've seen fairly clearly that it's very likely Christ will return in 2026 and the millennial will be set up after atonement in 2027. 2026 is only eight years away. Not very long. So this mini-millennium that we've been reading about in the various scriptures is very short, and it only arrives a short time before the real millennium arrives, and Christ reigns on the earth. So this application of Isaiah 6 has two. One, a mini-small increment of the millennium, or of the conditions of the millennium, to show the world how it can be if they'll just obey God. And then the real thing starts after the seven last plagues and most of mankind is dead because they won't listen. Now God's giving a solution here. And the beginning of it, where He works with the remnant of the church, and the beginning of the millennium is only a short distance apart. But God is saying, He's saying, why don't we quit butting heads here? <laughs> why don't you serve me and things will change? And the holy seed will mean something for a change. And the twig that I plant will work. So He's proposing a solution to the headbutting that has been going on. And He tells us in many scriptures, 90% of the church itself will not listen. They'll continue to butt heads until they're in the millennium middle of the tribulation and about to be killed over the Sabbath or whatever. And they finally say, Oh, I guess I better get on my knees and quit butting heads with God. And they'll repent. But they'll die anyway, physically. Resurrection won't be long, but they'll die. <clears throat> Most of them. 30% it says will repent and return. 
Jeremiah uh, 31. Jeremiah 31. And here let's pick up uh, verse 22. How long will you go about, O you backsliding daughter? For the Eternal has created a new thing in the earth. A man shall compass a woman. How long, church, how long, Israel, are you going to keep backsliding and tugging back from me? Like a heifer that plants all four feet, as Hosea expresses it. For the Eternal has created a new thing. Something new is coming along, he says, where instead of a man courting a woman... I'm going to make conditions such the woman will court a man. It's just the opposite of the way it normally is in society. A man goes a courting to find him a wife. Now it says, and we read that back in Isaiah 4, seven women will take hold of one man. So God is going to put so much pressure on, and He has been in the church, that... The women, the churches, the seven, the seven that will be planted in the wilderness in Isaiah 41, are going to finally begun, begin to come and seek Him instead of Him going to seek them. Now, He's going to do this by putting a lot of pressure on, and that's exactly what He's been doing. We have experienced incredible emotional, mental, spiritual pressure over the last... 30 years, especially the last 20. Have we not? And God says, I'm going to keep the pressure on until you start coming to me. I'm not going to come to you until you come to me. This is a new thing, he says. So he's starting to give us the answer to the problem. Thus says the Eternal of hosts, the God of Israel, As yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and the tribes thereof, whom I shall bring again their captivity. The Eternal bless you, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. That's Jerusalem. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satisfied the weary soul, and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet to me. So it's like Jeremiah was dreaming this, that God had imparted to him this understanding that if we'd quit backsliding and come to Him, then everything would get better and our sweet would be sleep. I mean, our sleep would be sweet. <clears throat> Behold, the day is come, says the Eternal that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass, like as I have watched over them, to pluck up and break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict. Now, that's what we've felt so far, right? And we've said, How long, O Lord, will this go on? So will I watch over them to build and to plant in those days... They shall say no more. The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on age. And goes on to show a new situation, a new covenant. And he says, people will no longer say, Know the Lord, because they're going to all know me. 
So he's going to fix this thing. That's what he's saying here. Don't work apart from me and force me to work apart from you. He says, let's work together here. You come to me and I will bless you. Simple solution. Problem is, only a small remnant will respond properly. You got the chance. All right, let's go to Zechariah 1. Now, we've been here several times in the last few weeks, but the solution is here. Zechariah 1. <clears throat> God had shown His displeasure at the way things were, and He was not really too displeased in verse 12. <coughs> the angel answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against whom you have had indignation threescore ten years, seventy years? Now this is an end-time prophecy about the remnant church and the two witnesses right at the end. So this is a 70 years that applies specifically to us today, to the end time church, is what this specifically is talking about. It's not 70 years back in Babylon. It's now. It's an end time prophecy. And he says, how long? So God answered and talked with good words and comfortable words, just as Jeremiah had said, I was looking at all this death, destruction, trouble, and affliction and wondering how long is this going to last? And then God showed me some sweet dreams. Things are going to turn around. They're going to get better. So here he says, good, comfortable words. And then God says, Cry out that I'm jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. God does not like the way things have been. That's why he spewed us out. He was not happy with the way things were. But he says, I'm going to fix this. I was a little displeased, but the heathen that came uh, made me sorely displeased. So then he says, I'm yet going to build Jerusalem and my house in it, and there will be comfort to Zion, and I will yet choose Jerusalem in the end of verse 17. But then he says, some problems have to be solved before this can happen. I've got some people that are acting like Gentiles that have to be scared and cast out and gotten rid of so that the blessing can come. He said, I'm going to bless those who will do what's right, and I'm going to get rid of those who will not. He's making it very plain. How long? Till some of you at least respond to me. 10%, we saw in Isaiah 6, respond to me and come. Meanwhile, I'm going to get rid of some people who intend to continue lying and stealing and extortion and whatever else they're doing, false accusation, on and on. I'm going to get rid of them. Then I can begin to build my temple. If you go on in chapter 2, I'll gather the people out of, the, out of Babylon. I'll come, I'll dwell with you. You'll be the apple of my eye, and we're going to get the work done. So he says, quit opposing me. Let's quit butting heads. Repent. Turn to me. Things will change. He starts giving us a solution. Now, 
I've gone over the last several weeks three keys that He has given us in three of the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, to answer not the emotional, spiritual question of how long, because that's what we've been dealing with up to this point today, is our frustrations because God doesn't seem to answer us. And we wonder, how long, O Lord? And then we've examined His frustration about how long before you quit rebelling and serve me in this Mexican standoff or catch-22 with no possible solution that's been going on for 6,000 years now. Now he's proposed, Christ proposed it in Matthew 17, and he showed it here in Zechariah 1, (coughs) that after 70 years it's going to change. Daniel recognized that. We went there where he says after 70 years... Things are going to change. God will begin to build His temple and then Jerusalem, as, as it later shows there. And that's an end-time prophecy in Daniel. But Daniel was understanding the end-time through Jeremiah. And here we're reading in Jeremiah and Zechariah the end-time solution to the problem. If God is going to have something to show the world of what He is capable of doing if they will just repent... He has to have somebody who quits butting heads with him and does what he says so that he can use them as his witnesses that he is God. And he's talking to you and me. He's talking to all those whom he has called here at the end of the age, primarily under Herbert Armstrong, and from whom he is choosing a few who will quit rebelling and following the world and follow Him so that He can use them as witnesses that He is God. He has a very, very important use for you and me and others who will respond, if we just will. He's laid it all out here for us. So in Isaiah 7, He says, From the time you bring forth Christ, quit butting heads with me and bring forth Christ in your character, in your hearts, in your mind, in obedience, from the time that pain and travail of how long, O Lord, ends, and you begin to turn to me in such a way that I can turn my face back to you, the amount of time before Ephraim is destroyed as a nation will be less than 65 years and less than it takes a time for a baby to say, Daddy and Mommy. Under a year. Probably quite a bit under a year. And I believe he started the count of the 65 years in 1954. And I've got several reasons for believing that, which I've rehearsed some of them already, but I've got a new one. But we won't go there. We're about to run out of time. But I want to put before you again that God says within 65 years, and I believe that's from from 54, this nation will no longer exist as a nation. That's in early 2019. When you combine it with the child not being able to say daddy and mommy before it happens, uh, it probably is early 2019. The Bilderbergers first met in May of 1954. So it'll be less than a year Uh, late fall, early winter, 
somewhere in there, this nation will not exist. And God will have begun to bless His remnant people and gather them because they have to gather ahead of the financial crisis we saw in Zephaniah 2. They have to come ahead of the Assyrian army that destroys Ephraim. So they have to come from the time that Christ is brought forth and He approves us and forgives our sin. Now, he can't turn His face to us as long as our sins remain. Now, we pray for forgiveness daily, and I think God does overall forgive our sins as individuals when we ask Him. But our sins as a church, our sins as Israel, He has not gotten rid of. He has them in His outbox, okay? Your outbox on your desk is where you put stuff that is going to go away. It is going to go to the post office or it's going to go to somebody else's desk or something. But he says, I'll remove your sins in one day in Zechariah 3, an end time prophecy. He says, I'll remove them as a cloud in Isaiah 44. I've quoted these scriptures many times. Passover seems the most likely time. And the first month is what Joel says is the time that the former and latter rains will come. So, for him to turn his face to us and us him to be able then to bless us, those sins have to go out of the outbox and under the blood of Christ and be gone. Because he will not exist within a framework of sin. They've got to go away. Now, we need to be praying very diligently that this happens soon so that He can bless us. How long, O Lord? Part of it's up to us. We're the one expressing the frustration, and He expresses it right back. How long are you going to disobey me? Fix that. Things will get better. And He even gives timetables. Then if you go to Ezekiel 4... He shows 430 years there that have to do with Israel. And at the end of 430 years, Babylon, Ephraim, is going to be destroyed and God will begin to bless His people. So we see before 65 years, we see at the end of 430 years, and then in Daniel and here in Jeremiah, He says at the end of 70 years, I'm going to destroy Babylon and I will bless you to go build the temple, just like he did in ancient times. So it's upon us, brethren, as I said last week at the end of the sermon. It's upon us. The time has come. You can't separate the 65, the 430, and the 70. They all mesh, and they all picture the same events. So they all have to end at the same time for them all to be true about the events that are going to occur. They, they can't, the 430 can't end 20 years before the 70, and vice versa. And the 65 represents Ephraim being destroyed, so it has to dovetail with the other two. There's no getting around it. So God has said, this is how long. The 430 began at Roanoke. It's the only time you can attach it. It ends this year in 2017, which is still here. The 70 began in 1947 when God began to expand to work to build houses and have children. It'll be a long captivity in Babylon, 70 years. 70 years later is 2017 in which 
God will begin to gather. 2017, 2018. I mean, after the 70 is done. So these things all come together and God says it's close. Now what does He tell us to do? Let's go to uh, very quickly here to Jeremiah 29. We've been over these. Verse 10. For thus says the Eternal that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon. That's where the church has been. Its headquarters was in the midst of it in Los Angeles. I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Where was he? Anathoth in Jerusalem. That's where we would return after 70 years in Babylon. So he's going to start drawing his remnant back to Jerusalem and Zion at the end of 70 years. Same as we read in Zechariah 1. Gives us a time. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. The end we have to expect is blessing. Now up to this point, we've been under cursing and scattering and splintering. But he says, I'm going to turn it around after 70 years. We're there. Now we have a choice. It's going to come at the end of 430. It's going to come at the end of 70. It's going to come before the end of 65. But who's going to be there? That's the only question. God has made it clear now how long this will be. And it's at the doorstep. I do truly, firmly believe. Let's read on. I'll give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. The headbutting will end. It'll stop after 6,000 years. And you shall seek me and find me, when you shall search for me with all your heart. So he's telling us what we need to do. You'll find me when you search for me with all your heart. Total focus. Complete heart. Everything. Turn to Him. He says, that's what you've got to do. Now, what's He going to do? And I will be found of you, says the Eternal. And I will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from all the peoples and places where I have driven you, And I will bring you again to the place where I cause you to be carried away captive. Back here in the American Southwest. Not L.A. this time, but Zion and Jerusalem in the same area. So he expresses his attitude here. He says, when you turn, you serve me with all your heart, I will be found of you. So he's saying, I'm willing, I'm ready. I want to be found. Come look for me, and I will let you find me. This is like playing hiding-seek when we were a kid. You run hide, and then they can't find you. And then somebody that wants to be found, the cute little blonde or whatever, hollers from the closet, I'm in here. Come find me. So with all your heart, you race to the little closet with the little blonde, and you find her, and everybody's happy. 
God says, come find me. And when you come, really come with all your heart, I'm going to let you find me. I'm not going to hide anymore. I will be found of you. So he gives us solution. And now we've already seen three major prophecies that give us not only the emotional, spiritual solution, which is the most important here, but also the physical numbers, even as Daniel understood by numbers when he read Jeremiah, we understand the numbers now. God's revealed them. But we also understand what must be done. And the problem is that when this story is revealed to the whole church, which it will be shortly, 90% will not respond. Only 10% will and come and take hold of the man. 10%. That's very clear through many scriptures. So when I say we have some decisions to make, 90% are going to make the wrong decision. This thing's coming on time. God is specific. He knows exactly what He's doing. He knows exactly when He's going to do it. And now He's told us when He's going to do it. And I believe that. And if you don't believe it, Isaiah 7 says, you're not stable. You're not living in faith. You won't believe God's words. Because there's no way to get around these. I defy anybody to show me how the 430, the 70, and the 65 don't fit together and the events surrounding them. I've tried to play that advocate, and I can't find it. If you can, more power to you. But I believe it. Now, what are we going to do? If we'll just do our part, God says, I'll let you find me. That's all I ask. Quit butting heads with me. Quit sliding backward like a heifer that's not broke the lead. And follow. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Now, there are a lot of people who have been waiting. I hardly have time to go. I will, too, very quickly here. Let's go to Daniel 12. Daniel 12, uh, verse 6. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, held up his right hand uh, and swore by him that lives forever that it shall be for three and a half years. And when the power of the holy people is completely scattered, these things will be finished. Now, when is the power of the church finally totally scattered? When the two witnesses die in the streets of Jerusalem. Then there's no power left in the church. And the resurrection will occur. He adds another 75 days in here, which we don't understand yet. <clears throat> but he tells Daniel, Go your way, in verse 13, till the end be, for you shall rest and stand in your lot at the end of the days. We are now at the time when the generation that was called under Herbert Armstrong is getting old and dying. And that generation will not die out, Christ said, until these things all happen. And the latter temple and Jerusalem have to be built before it comes. And we already know now, without rehearsing it here, that the 6,000 years of man only lacks a few years being finished, probably 20, uh, 26 and 27. 4,000 years till 27 A.D., 27 A.D. to 27 
19 or 2027 is 2,000 years. And you count back from that, the time of the last plagues, seven last plagues of a year, three and a half years of tribulation, and before that, a year and a half almost of building Jerusalem, and before that, the time to build the temple. That's only eight, ninety years until the nine years till the millennium starts from today. I mean, I don't mean specifically, but right now, this time. That's not very long. From the mini millennium to the real millennium is only about seven, eight years, six years. Got to start soon. It's here. The economy of the world is about to collapse. The war rhetoric is ratcheting up, and World War is going to start very soon, probably this fall or early winter. It's all going to be over for this nation. Even people who don't know these scriptures are saying that. And we see it confirmed in God's Word. And I believe it. It's going to happen. How long, O Lord? About over. And He says, How long till you return to me? He's putting the monkey on our back. Turn with all your heart, and I will include you because this thing is done. You're in it. It's going to start here very shortly. The gathering is, has to occur before the financial collapse and the destruction of this country. It has to happen just ahead of it. And it looks like it's coming this fall or winter. And based on these numbers, it looks like it is from God's Word. That means the gathering's got to start sometime this spring or summer, right? If it's going to do before all hell breaks loose, it's got to happen. Do you believe it? How stable are you? How much faith do you have in God that His Word is true? And when you put these things together, I see no way out of it. It's here. We've been butting heads with God and expressing our frustrations for 6,000 years. God has been butting our head and expressing His frustrations for 6,000 years. And both of us have been saying on our particular side, us and Him, how long? How long do you save us? How long do you repent? Back and forth, back and forth, 6,000 years. Now He says, it's the end. This is going to happen. Get your ducks lined up, come to me, I'll bless you. That's how long. Right now. Now, how long for those who are dead? It says there in Revelation uh, 6.10 that you have those who are waiting for us upon whom the ends of the world have come, basically in that language. For us to turn it around like those of our forefathers who did turn it around. How long will they have to wait? until we repent and God blesses us. That's how long Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Noah have to wait. Now, how long has their wait been? How long has Noah's wait been? How long has the wait been for some of those of our loved ones here who are laying up here in a cemetery? For all the above, Everybody listed in Hebrews 11. How long has their wait been? Zero. They are totally unconscious. The only ones who are still saying how long are us. 
And I've told you today how long. Now what are you going to do about it? Because all those people that are dead in Christ aren't, in that sense, waiting. They're inert. They have no thoughts. So their time until the resurrection is zero. It is only those who are still alive, us, who are saying how long. Now today I've told you how long. Now let's do something about it and be sure we're included.